Okay, if you don't have a copy of the Apostles' Creed, go ahead and take one. We are nearing the end of our study of the Apostles' Creed, probably only two or three more weeks. Uh, This week, Lord willing, we will wrap up our discussion of the church. Last week we talked about a number of the biblical metaphors for the church, like the fact that the church is a holy temple where God's glory dwells. The church is a tree or a vine. Uh, The church is Christ's body. The church is Christ's bride. And all of these metaphors help us to understand something of our identity in Christ and as His people. Uh, We talked about the metaphors. We also talked about the distinction between the visible church and the invisible church. The visible church is all professing Christians or all legitimate churches um, throughout the world. And the invisible church is only known to God. It is all of those who are truly saved uh, throughout the world for all time. We also talked about the marks of the church. Can anyone remember... What the we said there are three marks of the church. Can anyone remember what they are? Church discipline. Church discipline is one. Sacraments. Sacraments. Teaches the gospel. That's right. Right preaching of the word. Sacraments and discipline. Those are the marks of a true church. And we talked about the need to distinguish between like more pure versus less pure. So there are those churches that have these things going on. They may not be mature in their uh, church discipline. They may not be mature in their preaching of the Word. But they are preaching the Word. They are doing church discipline. They are a true church. But there are false churches which um, do not meet these criteria. Alright, let us say the Apostles' Creed together, if everyone has a copy, and we will go on from there. Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there He will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Alright, at the end of last week, John Austin told us a scenario where he had had an interaction with a young man who was Catholic, and I can't remember all the details, so could you tell us briefly what that was again? I was just sitting there by the pool, and he was like, he asked me if I was religious. Yeah. I was like, uh, yes, yeah, I'm religious. Yeah. Okay, cool. And uh, then he said um, something like, uh, are you Catholic? 
And I felt I felt bad telling him no. Yeah. That was my first thought. That's after we told the parents, he's like, just want to let you know, your son just asked me if I was Catholic, and I said no. Yeah. What he meant was Roman Catholic. Are you part of the Catholic Church? Um, but then I said, well, you could have said yes. Because we just said, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church. We've been saying that every month in, in the church service. And uh, so I would just say this. What is the Holy Catholic Church and are you a part of it? The Church Universal, all the believers. The Church Universal, very good, all the believers. The um, word... That's a Greek word, Catholicos. That's where you get the word Catholic. It just means universal. So when we say we believe in the Holy Catholic Church, what the uh, early church leaders had in mind was we believe in the universal church. We believe that the church is not just here in Germantown. It's not just in Memphis. It's not just in Tennessee. It's not just in the Southeast. It's not just in the United States. It's all over the world. Um, it's a church of all nations and people groups. It is a universal Catholic church. Uh, one distinction we would make is it has a lowercase c, not an uppercase c, although I think they really stole the uppercase c, and uh, we should have the rights to that. But either way. Who's we? The church. Yeah. No. The, back to the marks of the church. All true Christians, all legitimate churches. Um, not just the Baptist, Josh. Not just the Baptist, Josh. We know who really is. That's right, that's right. Um, so, is the Roman Catholic Church a part of the Holy Catholic Church? Well, I'm just hearing all sorts of answers. Make up your minds. Are you talking about their, some of their members? Or? Yeah, sure. Um, That's where my confusion came in. Yeah. So, the ones who are trusting in Jesus Christ as their Savior, yes, they're part of the... You can say that about any church. That's true. But as an institution, is the Roman Catholic Church a part of the Holy Catholic Church? No. No. But are there legitimate Christians inside of that institution? Probably. Yes, probably so. Yes, there are. What do you, and I agree with that. But I also look at people like Matt Marr, who we, listen, we all listen to his music. Mm-hmm. He's Catholic. Mm-hmm. He goes to a Catholic church. Mm-hmm. you think, I mean, he's, he's the exception? Yeah, I was reading Matt Walsh. Um, he's a good political talking head and he was the Pope recently said something and Matt Walsh is you know followed by bazillions of people Catholics and and Protestants alike and secularists and whatever but he's a Catholic and he was arguing against what the Pope said and everything that he was saying was Protestant and people were kind of saying hey man you're just not being consistent Catholic you know I mean I agree with what you're saying but you're just not being very Catholic um yeah, I, I don't know. That's where you just have to use discernment. And uh, there is a important sense in which we share a confession in some very important Christian doctrines, such as the Trinity. 
Um, there's an important sense in which we are co-belligerents socially against uh, things like abortion, where you know, and and then obviously there are some great um, political commentators and and social leaders and things like that. But if we're getting back to what is the true church, the marks of the church, is the Roman Catholic Church a part of the Holy Catholic Church? The answer would have to be no, in the sense that they preach a false gospel. When did that start? According to works of the law. When did what start? When did they stop becoming part of the Holy Catholic Church? I I can't give you a a year. Um, I would say officially at Trent when they, uh, you know put their stamp of approval on false doctrine, So, but it was obviously happening before then. The Council of Trent was in the 1500s, uh, around the time of the Reformation, but that was bleeding out for a long time before that, and there were Catholics uh, like Martin Luther, like John Calvin, these guys that saw a uh, saw Heresy and uh, irreconcilable differences within the Catholic Church tried to lead her in repentance and reform from within the Catholic Church and would even call themselves Reformed Catholics. Uh, That is the way the Reformers referred to themselves because they weren't trying to do away with the sense of Catholicism because that idea is perfectly good and perfectly biblical. They were trying to distance themselves from the uh, heresy within Roman Catholicism, and so I guess officially I would say Council of Trent, but before that, I don't I don't know exactly. Um, yes. I know they they prayed to Mother Mary, and it's like they believe that the wine actually turns into Jesus' real blood. But will you go over? Do you have time to go over a few of their false doctrines? Yeah, I mean, if you just even, um, you know, it's the, I would say this, if you go on the app, and Dr. Young did like a 15-week series, and I I think it was called The Pursuit of Healthy Eyes, it's really a very good summation of some of the main departures of the Catholic Church. For instance, the fact that Mary is a co-redemptrix, and one of the things, too, the uh, Immaculate Conception. Many Christians believe that that refers to Jesus' conception. The Catholic doctrine of the Immaculate Conception refers to Mary's Immaculate Conception. The fact that she was conceived without sin. The fact that she did not inherit original sin. Um, and so, those kinds of things. But then even just when we get to the working out of salvation, the fact that you're saved um, by works of the law. Now, they would say by grace, uh, through faith, but not faith that is alone, faith that is, uh, you know, faith plus works, and that sort of thing. We'd have to, I'd have to go back and look at it a little bit closer that's, and that's, do maybe a whole series on that, but go ahead. You can go to their website, go on the Vatican's website, and run off their catechism, which is probably yeah. more important than anything else uh, as a layman. Yeah. Knows. You're not even supposed to be able to understand the, the Bible. Right. You know? But you print that off and it's in a Word document. And I think in the highlighter, it's very easy, just like the noticeable ones. Like, just John out there, mm-hmm. you can pick the ones. And it's very inconsistent about salvation. I yeah. Mean, they say one thing here, and then you go down a few pages, and yeah. it says something else. You're like, 
Chris, yeah. I think, uh, you know, Dr. Young did his series on Catholicism, so really, good, yeah. really detailed and good. I think that's still online. Oh, is that what you were going yeah, you can find that on the app on the Wednesday night lessons. It's okay. called The Pursuit of Healthy Eyes. Uh, it used to be the first ones, that are, the oldest ones that are on there, yeah. so down at the bottom. I remember him saying that, you know, as soon as they, and I, maybe it was the Council of Trent that you were talking about, mm-hmm. placed an anathema on anyone who believed in justification by faith alone. Yeah. That's where it officially separated from what we would call the true church. Yeah. That you're made right with God, uh, justified, we say, by faith in Christ alone. And that's where the solas are good, uh, still good in explaining where we departed from Rome. Uh, you know, sola scriptura, that we believe that God has given one ultimate authority for faith and practice, and that is the Bible. Catholics deny that. Uh, that we are saved by Christ alone, uh, through faith alone, and by God's grace alone. Um, and they would deny all of those things. The alone part, and would want to add to, no, the way you're justified is, um, they believe that justification is started when you're baptized, and then as you work, uh, then you are finally justified at the end if you if you get it right, do enough, your penance, and, and all of that sort of thing. It's tough because uh, they submit to Rome. Every Catholic church. Right. I mean, OLPH. Right. And churches down in Latin America, they, they submit to this one governing body, right? <coughs> right. And that's where it gets kind of weird because you say, what do Catholics believe? Well, whatever Rome says. Yeah. And then they go, well, we don't believe that. So, well, you're not a Catholic. Then. Yeah. You're not being a good one. But here, like our church, we stand alone. Um, you go down the street to Germantown Baptist, they might yeah. be part of the Baptist Convention, but it's not, it's not the same. Yeah. Correct? Yeah, um, I think part of the you know appeal of a Roman Catholic Church would be a perceived unity, where uh, you look at the Evangelical Church and you see uh, sometimes a disunity, sometimes just total discord, and uh, you look and go, well, we're supposed to be united in Christ, and that's what they're doing, so they must be having, they must be onto something that we don't have. You know, I'm not so sure. I think that we go down to uh, the Baptist church down the street and on the essentials of salvation and our Christian confession, we would believe the same things, though we would differ on some important matters that we should continue talking about, um, but we would have a similar confession. That's part of the reason why I think it's important to go back to the Apostles' Creed and the councils and confessions of the church uh, where some people that grew up in more traditional denominations may think those things uh, dusty or dated, they're actually uh, helpful in establishing where our unity lies, which is in the person and work of God. And um, anyway. And even with this idea of unity and that they all submit to Rome, at least among the Catholic friends I have, most of them... I don't think would acknowledge mm-hmm. that there was an anathema or the, right. they don't know those They don't things. know those things. Yeah. I think there's a lot of Catholics that don't know all of that and if you were to present them with some of the things that the Catholic Catechism or the Council of Trent, you know, before that has said, um, they would be like, Oh, we don't talk about that. Um, and I would even say, 
even though believing wrongly about the Mass, the fact that um, elements are presented and the Gospel is preached even in texts that are read, people can still get saved. Um, you know, there is still a... God is still working there, but is that a true church? No, it's not. The, so what does that mean for us? Well, your Catholic friends and family need to be evangelized. Evangelism comes from the Greek word euangelion, which simply means gospel. They need the gospel. They, they don't get it in their tradition. They don't get it in their churches. Um, it's a different gospel. This was one of the main issues that the Apostle Paul had throughout his ministry. It was a different context. It was people coming from a Jewish background and saying that you know works of the law had to be added to this and that in order to be saved. And he's saying, no, it's salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that is the gospel. And so we want to uh, communicate that. I've had a Bible study with some friends of mine who grew up in the Catholic Church and their mother. And I remember telling her about the gift of salvation in Christ alone, through faith alone, um, by God's grace alone. And she said, it just cannot be. It cannot be. And I think, well, it is. You know? But she just, that is not what she's been trained to believe. She's living with a heavy guilt and shame for her divorce that she knows was against God's will. And I was speaking to her about the forgiveness of sins in Christ and the free gift of God uh, and salvation in Him. And and she just, it cannot be because it's not what they believe. Uh, It's a different message. It's a different gospel. But ultimately, that's the heart of the matter where the, you know, Back to the marks of the church, the right preaching of the word. Are there some things that, that are... Yeah, the Trinity is, is a part of our common confession. But when you get down to how is one saved, uh, that's where there's radical departure to Sean's point. So Chris, if you had a friend or individual who was um, subscribing to the full catechism of the Roman Catholic Church, yeah. I mean, would it be your opinion that they would not be eligible to enter heaven? I would, I would approach them as though they were not saved uh, in the same way that I would approach them as though a devout Mormon were not saved. Um, because we are not, we cannot see the heart. We only go by what people say and what they are declaring and affirming and trusting in is antithetical to the Christian gospel. Um, now, that doesn't say how do you approach talking to that person. That really depends. You know, uh, Joe Fazio is a, a good friend here at the church. He played football at Notre Dame, grew up in a devout Catholic family. All of his family is still Catholic. And he could talk to you about some of the do's and don'ts, you know, and how to, how to talk about these things with someone. Um, he's had some success in places and been unhelpful in places, but prayer is a great place to start. And not, you know, for God to move on their hearts, but also for wisdom and discernment as to how to move forward. Okay. Um, Let's move on to the next question. When was the church conceived and uh, born? What do you think? Pentecost. Anyone else? I like that one. You like that one? 
something. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, just for the sake of discussion, I'm going to disagree. Um, does anyone know what the word for church is in the Greek in the New Testament? Josh? Ecclesia? Ecclesia. Yeah. What a show off. <laughs> you said my name. I know, I know. <laughs> I'm kidding. We appreciate your pearls of wisdom. Yeah, we're, we're running out of words I remember that. So. Yeah, that's right. Ecclesia. And do you know what it means, Josh? Assembly. Assembly, called out assembly, assembled congregation, um, something like that. So in Hebrew, the word is it's kahal. No matter what I put, it's like I was thinking about this earlier. I was like, I should. Ah, it doesn't matter if I get it right. They have no idea. And frankly, neither do I. I did take Hebrew 1, which means uh, I have less Hebrew knowledge than most infants, in, you know, Jewish infants. They just don't have the ability to communicate yet, but they know a lot more than I do. Uh, it's the same meaning. It means uh, the gathered assembly, the congregation, uh, the called out ones, whatever you want to say. So um, I would say to you that... The church was conceived in the promises to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The church was born in the Exodus, and the church reached an important level of maturity at Pentecost. Uh, But that was not something altogether new that was happening at Pentecost. It was something that was promised long ago to Abraham and the patriarchs that was expressed in a typological form or pattern form in the Exodus and the people of Israel, and uh, which was reaching maturity, though not final maturity, at Pentecost. Obviously, we're still not to final maturity yet. And I want to show you some of that, um, but go to uh, Genesis 28, verse 3. <clears throat> Genesis 28... And whoever gets there first, shout it out. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. A company of peoples. um, The word is kahal. And some translations would say an assembly of peoples or an assembly of nations. Congregation, assembly, called out assembly. That's the idea. It's when this, you know, the the Greek translation of the Old Testament is called the Septuagint. And when they would translate kahal, they would use the word ekklesia because it's the same thing. It's the called out assembly. It's the congregation, the the assembled congregation of God's people. So here, uh, to Jacob, promises repeated. And uh, says, God Almighty bless you, make you fruitful, multiply, that you may become an assembly, a congregation of peoples. Um, go to Genesis 35, 11. 
And God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. That's the same idea where it says company of nations. The word is kahal. It's an assembly of nations, a congregation of nations is the idea. Of course, this has roots in the promise that was initially given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Um, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you, make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. To him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So this blessing that's promised to Abraham is going to all the families of the earth. And when this is uh, drawn upon and repeated to the patriarchs, to Isaac and Jacob, one of the ideas that we have is that there is going to be this assembly or congregation of nations. And that is a promise. So I would say to you, this is... The church conceived uh, when she is in her conception, when she's promised, and then we see the church born in uh, the Exodus. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 9. Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 10. Someone read that. gave me two tablets of stone written with the finger of God and on them were all the words that the Lord had spoken with you on the mountain of the midst of the fire and on the day of the assembly. On the day of the assembly Kahal, on the day of the assembled congregation it's the same word, it's the same idea. You could say on the day of the church um, when the congregation of the people of God was assembled in covenant before him which was what happened at Mount Sinai. So, up until the Exodus, the people of God, uh, starting with Abraham, were made promises that, that people, you know, Abraham grew into a family. The family went down to Egypt. They grew into this great people that were so great uh, in number. And at Sinai, they are assembled as the covenant assembly, the congregation, uh, the church before God. So the church was in seed form in the promises of the patriarchs. The church is born in the Exodus. And in Christ at Pentecost, the church grows in significant maturity. Because at Pentecost we see, and if you don't know what Pentecost is, Pentecost is uh, after Jesus rose and went back to heaven, He sent the Holy Spirit to His disciples in Acts chapter 2. And we'll read that here in a second. But it's when the Spirit was poured out in mass and indwelled God's people, um, and that event is known as Pentecost. So at Pentecost, we see even greater uh, development of the promises that were made to Abraham thousands of years before, and then, you know, the reality that was patterned or foreshadowed in the people of Israel as they assembled at Sinai and gathered together as God's covenant assembly. Deuteronomy, that's all about renewing covenant, gathered together as covenant assembly. It's them being the church. And um, we see that further developed in the book of Acts. So go to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, 
when the day of Pentecost, starting in verse 1, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, that is, the disciples. Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Okay? That's an important thing to see. And then you go, and what happens next is Peter preaches to all of these people. Because the the devout Jews from every nation under heaven see this thing that has happened, and they think, these people are nuts. They're a cult. They're drunk. What is going on? We hear them speaking in our language. They must have a demon. And Peter preaches. He stands up and he preaches to this assembly of people, devout Jews from every nation under heaven. And what you see at the end of chapter 2 is um, verse 37. Now when they heard this, when they heard Peter's sermon, they were cut to the heart and said, Peter... And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Um, then what you have, so they do that. There are, uh, it says, 3,000 souls in verse 41 were added to their number. And where were these people from? From every nation. They were devout Jews from every nation. Now remember, the promises to the patriarchs were an assembled congregation, a, a, uh, a church of the nations, right? And what we have in its maturity is, okay, we reached some maturity at, ex- at the Exodus where there is the assembled congregation at Mount Sinai, but it was still just one nation. And what happens at Pentecost is the church goes to all nations. There were assembled there, people from every nation, the Spirit is poured out, and the church reaches this incredible maturity as uh, the blessings that were promised to Abraham, salvation to the ends of the earth, are coming to maturity in Christ. Okay? Does that make sense? Okay, well what are the, what's the significance of that for our lives now then? Understanding that the church was conceived in the promises of the patriarchs and was born in the Exodus and reaches maturity in Christ and, and Pentecost. One important application is just simply understanding how to read our Bibles. You know, understanding that the Bible is a unified whole and understanding that um, God has always been doing the same thing. It's something that He even hinted at as early as Genesis chapter 3 in a seed of the woman that would come and and destroy the seed of the serpent. Uh, That was a hint at Christ. And ultimately, that reaches uh, a greater maturity in the promises to Abraham, which reaches greater maturity in the people of Israel gathered at Mount Sinai, which reaches greater maturity at Pentecost. But all along, it's the same thing, God's blessing of salvation to the ends of the earth being developed from first to last. So there's a unified whole in the Scriptures. Are there distinctions? Are there differences? And do we need to be careful to make distinctions between the people of Israel and the church? Yes, there are distinctions to be made. But it's, I would even argue, more important first to get the fact that everything runs together. That there is a unified whole so that we can understand 
more about even just reading our Bible. But also understanding the mission of the church. You know, why do we care about packing 1,500 shoeboxes to send somewhere in the Middle East? Um, Why do we care about that? And why do we care about having a cricket tournament? Not one of us knows anything about cricket. And we had 180 Indian neighbors here that most of us don't know. Why in the world do we do this kind of stuff? Well, it's because God's promises to Abraham that you know reached a certain level of maturity and the church assembled before Him in the nation of Israel. And at Pentecost, it's being spread to all nations and we get to play a part in that. This is what God is doing. He is gathering His church of all nations. His covenant assembly that was promised to Abraham a long time ago. But we have reached such a level of maturity in that we get to participate with that. He's given us His Holy Spirit and we get to go and tell them about Christ and that's the way He brings them into His family, into this assembled congregation of the nations. Um, so we care about that. You know, we care about showing them that we love them. We, we care about showing them that we value their culture, even though we don't understand it. You know, Jonathan was laughing about like, man, at the end of the dinner, they just stay. <laughs> you know, because they don't eat dinner in 12 minutes. They eat dinner over three hours. It's just a different culture. And there's some difficulties that come with that. But we love them and we want them to know Christ. And we want them to come and join us as members of this assembled congregation of the nations. So we do stuff like that. And we pack boxes and we pray over them and and we pay for them and we send them out and we pray for the communities that they're going to because we believe God's going to use these means as simple as they are to do the work that He promised long ago and that is, um, is continuing down to the present day. What else? What stands out about all this? Absolutely. Anything uh, that you're still waiting to see materialized and fulfilled, and you would even pray according to God's promises in your life, and yet you haven't seen them come to fruition yet, well, think about Abraham. I mean, we're talking about the fulfillment of the promises made to Abraham thousands and thousands of years after him. So, God is going to make good on the promises that He has made, but His timing is often different than ours. And, and we kind of want it now. We want to see things shape up now. Um, for example, prayers uh, for the salvation of our children. I believe there are uh, significant promises made for that very thing in the Scriptures, and, yet, and we ought to pray according to those promises And yet, does that mean that at uh, 13 or 18 or 23 or 41 even, they're just going to be upstanding citizens making all the right decisions, uh, bold in the faith? 
you know, winning millions to Christ. Well, maybe some of our kids are, but you know what? In a room this size, some of our kids are going to wander into devastating sin. Some of our kids are going to renounce the faith. Some of our kids are going to be complete idiots. And yet we're going to pray according to God's promises that He would be faithful even when everything looks like uh, it is not materializing as we had hoped. And we're just going to trust that He's going to be faithful to the things that He said. Um, I think there would be great encouragement for people of our age and people, you know, there's elderly people in our church who still grieve the condition of their children's lives or something like that. They just go back to the promises of God, pray according to the promises of God, pray that God would be faithful, pray that God would intervene, and uh, trust Him. What else? Am I the only one in the room, maybe I just learned this or something, but it's kind of been taught, don't talk religion and politics, period. Or maybe that's the military in me. Yeah. Um, don't talk. I've heard that. <laughs> Do not speak religion and politics. Uh-huh. And I think what's so sad, um, it's it's easy for me to tell my kids, oh yeah, invite your friends to church. Da, 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 da. Am I inviting my friends? Uh-huh. I mean, but, um, you know, am I doing it? And the answer, quite frankly, is no. Yeah. I mean, no, I am not Facebooking a whole bunch of stuff. I'm not, you know, mm-hmm. um, does that mean I'm the worst person in the world? No. But we've been taught that, and it's so hard. And I taught in public schools. Uh-uh. Oh, no. Don't bring up religion and politics. No, no, no. Yeah. When Obama was first elected, I was working over in West Memphis. Y'all, that was, it was nuts that day yeah. at school. Um, I was not about to tell anyone who I voted for. But, um, you know, it, it's just difficult. Yeah, well, and I think you bring up a good point. So we have and we live in a culture that is not going to uh, encourage us to base our lives on the promises of God and herald them and tell them. Because that is the way, you know, in our rejoicing in the things of God and our sharing uh, the faithfulness of God is the way that God adds to the number of the assembled congregation. And, you know, we find ourselves... What boldness or courage is, is clarity in the face of opposition. You don't have to have a deep voice. You don't have to speak loudly. You simply have to be clear about what is true in the face of opposition. We're living in a culture that is going to continue to oppose what we love, what we believe, but we really ought to pray for boldness and courage to be clear in the face of opposition. To be clear even in our just glad rejoicing at who God is and what He's done, but also in telling, even when people say, you're in a no-tell zone. Um, No, there is not one. We should just tell in loving ways. Um, But I think that's a good point. All right, we need to quit. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we want to know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Lord, that is eternal life, and sometimes we make it more complicated than it is. Um, I pray that we would indeed know you. Lord, if uh, anything that we have said today, that I have said today, has been unhelpful to that end, would you cause it to be forgotten quickly? But Lord, would you plant the seeds of truth in our hearts uh, that they would grow 
good crops and bear good fruit to eternal life. Help us, Lord, to better understand how you've revealed yourself and uh, the connections that are all throughout the scriptures. And for instance, the promises made to the patriarchs in regard to this assembled congregation of the nations, uh, the way that that reaches a certain level of maturity in the Exodus and the people of Israel and how that uh, the doors have been blown off and that blessing promised to Abraham, salvation to the ends of the earth is, is now heading to the ends of the earth. Help us to love um, your promises. Help us to embrace them for our own lives, to trust in you, and help us, Lord, to embrace the responsibility that you've given us to participate in what you're doing. Give us boldness. Give us courage. Lord, help us uh, to build a life on the rock, on the promises that you've made, and live in obedience to you. Uh, Thank you for this time. Thank you that you have included us in your church. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Very good. Moving on to lesson six next week.